This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. Today, we want to talk about communicating with your kids, especially adolescents, making sure they open up and you have open communication. We've got with us today Lizzie Brown, who's a family therapist at Cook Children's Healthcare System. Lizzie, welcome to the show. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. It's such an important topic. I'm really, really glad to speak on it. You know, I know it's difficult uh, for teenagers and adolescents especially uh, sometimes to communicate with their parents. What can you suggest to parents that will help them as they get their children to open up and express their feelings? Yeah, so this is a tough topic in general because teenagers are difficult in general. <laughs> so um, if you think about what's going on developmentally with teens at this time, um, you know, they're kind of wired to be developing their independence, differentiating themselves from their peers, learning who they are. And then a, a big part of that is separating from their parents. So it's already going to be a difficult time for your teens to be talking to you in the first place. So if you can get your teen to tell you anything, consider that a win and give yourself lots of grace as a parent that this is already a tricky time to get your kid to open up. But in general, I think that the main thing that I wanted to highlight is that um, we really want to focus as parents on being really good listeners. Um, you know, that sounds counterintuitive. It's like if I want my kid to open up, I need to be asking them a lot of questions. I need to be really, really trying to get them to talk to me. But uh, there's way more value in looking for the openings of your child wanting to talk to you and then really trying to be a good listener in those openings than there is of trying to force that door open with your team, um, if that's making sense. No, it makes good sense. I do want to ask you, though, that's a good point about being a good listener. But don't parents also need to focus on, as they're listening, watch that body language and watch your facial expressions yes. because they may make the, the kids, you know, clam up, so to speak. Oh, you're, you're exactly right about that. So that is actually part of being a good listener. So when we think of being a good listener, like it, in counseling world as, as a therapist, uh, we actually spend a long time training on something called active listening. I mean, it's a really intentional skill that, that we work on. And the more intentional that you can be about this when you're listening as a parent, the more likely that your child is going to be uh, to have that trust to open up to you. So yes, you do want to focus on having uh, really good uh, attuned body language. So if if your face or your body looks like you are not taking what they're saying seriously or that you feel annoyed um, or that you're um, even feeling a little sarcastic about what they're saying, they're gonna they're gonna shut down. they're gonna think you're you're not getting where I'm coming from and and, and you're not taking what I'm saying seriously. Uh, or you or you just don't get it parent or mom or dad, you just don't get it. Um, so yes, you do need to focus on your body language and tone of voice when you're doing this uh, kind of listening. 
You know, when you discussed in your answer teenagers and their independent, let's pivot a little bit and go to maybe even kindergarten or pre-adolescent age. How do you get children at that age to open up? Yeah, so that's it does look a little bit different with that age. But there are still some similarities. I, I think in general, you, you want to look for their body language as well. When we're caring for our children, we can we can tell when they're feeling something, um, even most of the time just by looking at their faces. Like, you know, an example I like to give parents when I'm talking about stuff, this kind of stuff is let's say your, your kid comes home from school, they walk in the door and they kind of like bounce in and you say, how's your day? And they say, fine. And then they just kind of move, move, move on. Um, you'll know if your kid is upset because they'll walk in the door and you'll see it on their face. Their face might be, you know, it might be frowning. They might be walking a little slower. They might give you a different tone when they say fine. And you can notice those changes even with a kid as young as kindergarten or pre-adolescence as well as your teenagers. So when we say like looking for the openings, looking for the moments where you can focus on listening, that's the kind of stuff that you want to look for in your kid too, to, to really be super focused on what we think they're trying to communicate, even if they're not saying it with words. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it really does. And for our listeners out there, can you explain to them in your role as a family therapist why it is so important for children, regardless of their age, to feel that they can openly discuss things with their parents? I think first and foremost, we want our kids to have accurate and safe information. Our, our kids, especially now in 2022, can get information in a lot of different ways. Um, they have so much more access to information than, than I ever did as a kid, and I'm sure many of the adults that might be listening as, have ever had. Um, so we want them to be able to feel comfortable coming to us and trusting us so that we can give them good information about the things that they're concerned about. Usually the, the parents and caregivers are going to be the people, too, that, that care about their kids and love them the most and the people that really have their best interest at heart. And so we want them to come to us so that we can guide them with, you know, the most sound information that is going to have their best interests um, in mind. I mean, we want kids to feel safe enough to know that their parents are there to help them. When kids come and talk to their parents, and it's good if, they, if they're open and they feel they can, as a family therapist, what are some red flags that parents may hear things, not be judgmental, but no, maybe it's time I go see a professional like Lizzie. Do you have any red flags that you could mention to our listeners? Well, okay, so I think the good thing is I think that the coming to therapy is becoming um, more common now and more of an open discussion. So a lot of times we're finding that teens especially are, are at times asking for it, which is, which is wonderful. So if your kid comes to you and, and is saying, hey, I think I might need to talk to somebody really try to accommodate that request and see, see if that's something that you can do. Um, if your kid's not coming to you and saying something like that, maybe some of the signs you might want to look for is noticing if your child is isolating themselves more than usual. Now, it's going to be normal in the teenagers, especially for your kid to spend more time in their room and spend more time on their phones. Um, but if you're noticing that you're having a hard time getting your child out of their room for anything, um, that that's a maybe a, a time that you want to talk to them about seeing if there's anything else going on. Um, if you're seeing any kind of changes in academics, like your student or your child used to be um, a relatively good 
student and then all of a sudden their their grades are starting to drop or they're not turning in schoolwork, that might be something you might want to come talk to, to one of, to a family therapist. For younger kids, younger kids, it might look more behavioral too. So we might see more temper tantrums from like a change in, in, in behavior from what you're used to. Uh, more irritability. Teenagers, we also might see more irritability or just noticing some of that body language and facial expressions. If you're noticing more often than not that they're they're having difficult emotions, they seem more anxious, they seem more sad, they seem more withdrawn, then that might be a good time um, to facilitate that discussion about whether they should come see somebody. When we're talking about our kids, we're talking about the most important thing we can be talking about on the human side of healthcare. So we're going to keep it going with Lizzie Brown, family therapist at Cook Children's Healthcare System, next. This is the human side of healthcare, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're continuing this conversation about how we can help our kids open up and talk more to us, especially our teenagers, by being better listeners. We're rejoining now the conversation with Lizzie Brown, family therapist at Cook Children's Healthcare System in Fort Worth. What is your advice to parents? When a child comes to them and tells them very openly and honestly a tough situation, how should they respond? Yeah, this should also be intentional, too. So I'm glad you, you asked this question. Um, we have a saying in play therapy that I use with younger kids that if your child is drowning, don't try to teach them to swim. And I also would like to extend that to if you feel like you are drowning, do not try to teach your child to swim. So <laughs> that basically what I mean by that is if, if you are in the middle of a big emotional outburst with your child, if your child is yelling or upset or, or right in the thick of seeming really keyed up, or even if they're really shut down and just like, no, I'm not talking to you, that would not be the best time to try to start having a heartfelt conversation about feelings. Um, it's just not going to be very effective. And the same goes for adults. And sometimes we forget this as adults as well, that, that you know, when we're raising kids, we're humans too in the midst of this process. And, you know, we're humans before we're parents. And so there might be times where, you know, you just fought traffic for 45 minutes to get home and you come home and you're feeling really upset and you're feeling like you need a minute that's not a good time to talk to your kids about emotions either because you're not going to be able to be a good listener if you're focused on meeting your own self-care needs first. You know, it's important to remember both of those things. If, if anybody's feeling too keyed up, too shut down, it's just not going to be a good time. So save that for a time, save it for a time when both of you can be calm and focused on, on having a good conversation. You know, a question for you as a family therapist, and this is more adult to adult, Let's mm -hmm. assume that there's a child, maybe an adolescent, that's got a significant issue, but they don't want to talk to their parents, but they confide in their aunt, their uncle, or a good friend. But it's a very serious situation. When should that adult approach the parents without feeling they betrayed the child? So... My blanket answer to this is always if, if there is a safety risk involved, they have to talk to the parent about it so that you could then plan for keeping that kid safe. So if you can ask yourself if you're, if you're one of these other adults and that child has come to you and said something to you that's concerning and you ask yourself, is there a potential for this to turn into an unsafe situation and you answer yes to yourself, 
go ahead and talk to their parents about it. You can talk to the kid first. And, and I, you know, we have to do this too in therapy. We have to disclose uncomfortable information to parents too. You know, we have to break that confidentiality. And I, I always just say to my, my clients or my kids, like, my first job is to make sure that you're safe and what you're talking to me about is really unsafe. And um, we have to talk to your parents so that they can keep you safe because we all care about you that much. You know, it's a difficult subject to talk about, but when I talk to many mental health professionals, suicide attempted adolescent actions are at an epidemic proportion. Do you have any thoughts on that suggestions or ideas of how, we can do something to address this serious problem. Yeah, this is not going to be a quick answer. (laughs) This is is just not an easy, quick one to to respond to. Um, I mean, if you think about what we're dealing with right now in the world today, there's been some things that have happened culturally and socially and environmentally that have kind of rocked everybody's sense of normalcy and, and safety. So it, it's not totally surprising that we're seeing this, this struggle. Um, I think as, as parents and, and caregivers, um, are just important people in a child's life, it's, it's really important to just focus on the relationship that you have with that kid. Really, really working hard to make sure that you have a loving and trusting and nurturing relationship with your child and, and, and making that the foundation for everything else you do. Now, of course, we need discipline, we need structure, we need rules, we need boundaries, we need all of those things as well. But the relationship is what is going to be followed back on when your kid needs that help and support. They're not going to come to you unless they feel like they have a good, trusting, close relationship with you. Um, so, so my general advice for, for caregivers and parents is, is really trying hard to empathize with what your kid might be going through. Put yourself in their shoes and really focusing on that relational piece with your kid. Another question I have is what advice do you give parents Let's assume that a child comes to them, is very open, has open communication, but tells them about a very serious problem, and it is very troublesome to the parents, and they're good listeners, they follow all of your advice. How do they respond? How should they respond to the child uh, under those circumstances? Yeah, and and First of all, if your child comes to you, that is wonderful. That is, um, consider yourself having a parenting or adult win if your kid is coming to you to talk to you about something hard. That's great. And that's great for your teenager or your kid to do that. Um, So I think it's okay to say to your child, that sounds really stressful and I'm really concerned about that. And I'm not really sure what to do about that. And I think I'm going to have to find out a good a good answer for you and then maybe go to a professional. So a good resource would be if your kid already has a therapist, of course, go talk to the therapist. If not, maybe their primary care doctor. Um, maybe they have, maybe you know the school counselor and you could talk to them, get some support or advice from them. Um, it's okay to say that you're not really sure what, what how to handle that situation, but you're so glad that they came to you with that. You know, bullying is really big these days, 24-7. What about that? Yeah, if it's like happening all the time, it's not it's beyond the scope of just a normal conflict between kids. You really do need to seek support from 
the environment where it's occurring. So whether that's typically it's going to be school. So you really do need to talk to the school about that. And you might have to have a conversation with your child and say, I know, you know, you might not want me to do this, but we, we really do need to take this seriously and, and try to get this solved so that you feel safer at school. Um, the other thing I would do in focusing with your child is trying to figure out who their allies are so that they have that sense of protection and safety at school. So when you're talking to your kid about this, you might say, okay, who is a kid that's just always nice? Or who is a kid that's just always seems to be on your side, always seems to be supportive of you? Can we spend more time with that kid? Can you sit at lunch with them? So just trying to help them feel, have that support network in school while we're working on getting the, the big issue resolved. Well, Lizzie, you've done a great job. You've answered all the questions I have. I am going to pause a minute to see if Thomas has questions. Well, okay. I do have a couple. This is an area oh, that good. I'm super interested in. Yeah, of course. Shoot. What are the top issues that teens are facing today? Oh, my gosh. That's really that's a really tough question. Okay, so I think um, what we normally see as far as the top issues are just more um, a greater sense of anxiety that I haven't seen prior to this. Um, like it kind of ties into what we were talking about before. It was just the world has kind of been rocked lately. A lot, lots of different things have happened socially and environmentally. And so that's going to lead to a natural sense of, of feeling anxious about, you know, where is this all going to go and how are things going to end up being? So we're seeing a lot, a lot of anxiety um, recently. And, and then, of course, anxiety and depression can kind of go hand in hand. So we do see a lot of depression now. Um, I think kids deal with uh, a lot more access to information than they've ever had before. And sometimes that can be a really wonderful thing, but sometimes that can be really anxiety provoking. Um, so I see that as a big difference with today's kids and today's teens than, than what we've ever um, really had in the past. Well, and that kind of parlays the next thing that I'd like to ask, and that is the impact of COVID specifically. Mm -hmm. I think back my era grandparents, Steve's era grandparents, went through the Depression, and sometimes folks from that era would have a hard time throwing anything away. Yeah. How do you think yeah. kids today will be impacted by the last two years? I don't know long term what the answer to that question is, but, you know, we are seeing the impacts of that of that now. I think the uncertainty is a big one. Um, so like even if, if your school wasn't closed for a long time or you didn't do virtual school for a long time, you know, you still are susceptible to that sense of uncertainty about when is this going to be over? When will things really go back to normal? You know, when, when will we not have to worry about this anymore? I, I think kids feel, I think the adults are feeling that right now a lot too. Um, if you if you throw on top of that um, the social isolation of having school from home like that that was really hard for a lot of kids. Um, even if you don't didn't have school from home, a lot of our kids' extracurriculars were shut down um, for for quite some time, and you know they missed out on you know some of the things that were the best coping skills for them, like sports and you know theater classes and you know all those things that just uh, contribute to overall health and wellness and were, were gone for an extended period of time. And it takes a minute to recover from that. So I, I see that as all things that are kind of leading up to where, where we're at now. Um, and my hope is that as things stabilize, we'll kind of get back to a better place. But I definitely think those things have contributed to difficulties with mental health now. 
Great advice from Lizzie Brown, family therapist at Cook Children's Healthcare System. They have quite a team of professionals at Cook Children's here to serve the Metroplex and help our kids live their best lives. And if you'd like to hear the entire interview with Lizzie, just check out our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. Now, coming up next, less invasive, more effective robotic surgery for heart disease. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Human Side of Healthcare, where we explore how to take better care of your health so you can live a happier, healthier life. With DFW Hospital Council CEO, Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome to The Human Side of Healthcare. Delighted you're with us today. And today we want to talk about some of the cutting edge breakthrough robotic health procedures that are used today in surgery. We're delighted that we've got with us Dr. John Mark Poole. Dr. Poole is a cardiovascular and thoracic surgeon at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital here in Dallas. Dr. Poole, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be able to speak with you today. You know, you've been a surgeon for over 10 years. You've seen a lot of technological changes. Explain to our listeners how this robotic surgery is different. Sure, appreciate that. Uh, Most heart surgery is done with a traditional method where an incision is made through the middle of the chest, basically through the sternal bone. Most heart operations are done that way. But over the past several years, new methods have been developed and two in particular are less invasive. So one method is just simply called minimally invasive heart surgery, where instead of going through the bone, a smaller incision is made off to the side. And for certain operations, it's a great way to access the chest and access the heart and be able to get the work done. On top of that, an emerging method is a robotic approach where the small incisions off to the side allow for the robot to be used and manipulate the tissues, navigate the structures of the chest, and be able to get the work done using that fine, meticulous, precise instrument of the robot. You know, robotic surgery has been used, say, in some forms of prostate cancer surgery. Would the mechanics of this be comparable to that? Yes, sir. As you mentioned, urology is using it a lot, general surgery now, OB-GYN, many different specialties are using the robot. And cardiac, interestingly, very early on had kind of tried it out. Some of the surgeons tried it when the robot first came to market, but it was so difficult to learn how to do it that most heart surgeons in the United States shied away from it, didn't want to try to learn it. But now there's been this resurgence, almost following along seeing how successful urology and the other subspecialties have been, where a lot of surgeons now, especially kind of younger guys like me, if you will, are open to it and desirous of using that. Also, we see our patients are highly desirous of finding methods to be able to get the work done on the heart without having to go through the front. It'd be a little bit like having to have the foundation at your house repaired. You don't want them to tear up your living room if you can help it. And so patients oftentimes feel the same way. If we can get the same work done going through a smaller incision and accessing a different area, but still do the same high quality work, then that's what the patients would like to have happen. 
You know, there are different forms of cardiac issues. Which ones does robotic surgery help the most? You're right. There are many different potential problems with the heart and ways that things need to be fixed. The number one disease that the robot is helpful in treating at this time is mitral valve disease. Uh, Mitral valve disease can affect younger patients oftentimes, and it's typically where the valve starts to leak. You may have heard of someone having mitral valve prolapse. That means that part of the valve is moving out of the usual plane, and it's like it's too floppy, it's too redundant, and that may or may not be something that needs to be fixed. A lot of people are asymptomatic, they don't have a problem with it, and you just follow it over time. But if that valve starts to leak a lot and start to affect the heart or start to create symptoms, then it needs to be fixed. And mitral valve repair, going in to tweak the valve, stitch here, stitch there, make it go back to the usual shape and not leak anymore, that is a great operation for the robot just because of the way the angles work and how the robot is able to move it lends itself nicely to a robotic repair so that's probably the number one case is is mitral valve repair Uh, and sometimes the valve has to be replaced so mitral valve repair or replacement another way that it can be used is with coronary artery disease that's where plaque builds up in the arteries of the heart Now, most of the time, if multiple blood vessels need to be fixed, then we have to go with the old-fashioned method down the middle, and that's because several areas or locations of the heart have to be accessed. That's very difficult to do with the robot. For instance, if you come in from the left side with the robot, you can't hardly get over to the right side of the heart to be able to see just the way the angles work out. So on occasion... Bypass surgery can be done with the robot, but it's typically only if one artery needs to be fixed. Multiple arteries need to be fixed, and we usually have to do it the old-fashioned way. You know, that's the benefit to the patient. What about to the physicians and the care team? One of the benefits of the robot is that the video camera for the robot has 10 times magnification. So it's essentially an unprecedented way to look at the structures of the heart. For heart surgery, most surgeons wear loops or special glasses that have magnifying lenses, and my loops are three and a half magnification because a lot of the heart structures are quite small. But not everybody in the room has loops on, and not everybody in the room can see what I'm looking at at any given point in time. But with the robot, everybody can see what I'm looking at because the video camera images are projected onto, we have three or four screens usually in the room, where pretty much everybody can see exactly the same thing that I'm seeing, and it's magnified 10 times the normal anatomy. So it's a wonderful way for everybody to be able to see and understand what we're looking at, what we're doing, how the operation is proceeding, exactly what am I doing in there. And I think it brings a little bit more uh, satisfaction to the team members to have a deeper understanding about what we're doing. It's an enhancement, I would say, of the team aspect of it, of the teamwork that we do. Now, we have a pretty lean machine in the heart room. We oftentimes work together for years, and there's a great dynamic and interaction. And also, this enhances that even more. There's a lot of communication. We have to talk even more. I find myself describing what I'm doing. I'm not sure why, but 
I guess because everybody can see what I'm doing, I often will say, now I'm going to do X, Y, Z versus if I'm the only one that can see, say in a traditional method, I don't usually verbalize what I'm doing because they they can't see and understand it anyway. So I think the robotic technique is wonderful for our team because everybody can see what we're doing. It enhances the understanding and it enhances the teamwork and communication part also the point of providing an excellent operation for the patient. You know, not only the benefits to the care team, this improves the quality of care for the patient. Absolutely. I feel like when we're all focused and working together for that one point, it's like every moment, if everybody is into it, if everybody is uh, on the ball, then we're able to provide an excellent operation because every single part of the operation was done well. And I feel like the robot helps to bring that to everyone's mind for the operation that we're doing. You know, you mentioned the uh, satisfaction of the care team, but all providers certainly want to make sure we have patient satisfaction. And I know the American College of Cardiology has pointed out several patient satisfiers connected to robotic procedures. Can you share with the listeners a few of those and how some of your patients have actually reacted to these robotic procedures? The robot, in as much as the incisions are smaller, tends to create less pain. And because there's less pain, the patient is able to recover a little bit quicker. The hospital stay may be just a little bit quicker than with traditional methods, but once the patient gets home, that's when they really get the benefit of a robotic operation. Instead of having to worry about, are they lifting too much? Are they moving too much? Maybe it's going to hurt the bone in the front, like when we do a traditional method. With the robotic technique, none of the bones are disturbed. There's really not much trauma even to the muscles, so the patients can get back to doing the things they want to do much more quickly. They can get back to work. They can get back to exercise. They can get back to their hobbies like playing golf, vigorous activities, and they can do so more quickly and also with the presence of mind of knowing that they're not going to hurt themselves. They're not at risk for messing something up. They can really go at it and not have to worry. So that's probably the greatest satisfier for patients. I've found that a lot of patients with high impact physical occupations, so firefighters, police officers, uh, I had a Navy SEAL once that I treated, those kind of patients, they don't want to have their bone cut. They don't want to have that feeling that they have to be real careful. And so those are patients who tend to seek out a robotic approach because they can get back to doing the things that they need and want to do and not have to worry about harming themselves. Another aspect or potential benefit is there tends to be a little bit less blood loss compared to traditional methods. So the risk of blood transfusion a little bit lower and there's a little bit of a lower risk of dysrhythmias afterward where the heart rhythm gets irregular in particular atrial fibrillation it's a common problem after heart surgery and seems to be a little bit less likely after a robotic approach compared to normal. So patients really oftentimes love the idea of a robotic approach, especially once they know about it. And particularly patients who are very physically active, they're the ones who benefit from the operation being done that way. 
What a tremendous inside look we are getting into the latest techniques and technologies to treat heart disease with Dr. John Mark Poole, cardiovascular surgeon at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas. You can check this out and our conversation with Lizzie Brown on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. When we come back, how you can prevent having such a surgery in the first place. That's next on The Human Side of Healthcare. Covering the healthcare topics that matter most to North Texas. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council CEO Stephen Love, along with Thomas Miller. Welcome back. Let's jump right back in with Dr. John Mark Poole, cardiovascular surgeon at Texas Health Presbyterian Hospital of Dallas. Heart disease across America is growing at such an alarming rate. And now, new robotic technology to help treat it. Steve? You know, treating the heart can be very daunting to the patient. What would be your most valuable message and piece of advice today to our listeners? My main takeaway point would be ask questions. I'm intrigued that oftentimes patients, it seems to me like they're reluctant to ask, like they're intimidated maybe by the physician or I'm not real sure why, but Oftentimes, people may think, man, I wonder if there's a different way to do this, but they don't even ask. And so my takeaway point for the listeners would be just ask. If you're looking at needing a procedure, just ask the doctor, is there any other way that we could do this? And if so, then explore that. Now, the answer might be no. It could be that there is absolutely no other way to do this, and then that, that's fine, but at least the question was asked. So piggybacking off of that, the question in particular for patients with mitral valve disease or even coronary artery disease, blockages of the heart, is robotic surgery a method that could be used for my particular case? Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes the answer is no, but just have that confidence to ask and your physician can steer you the correct, the correct direction and help you get to a surgeon who does robotics if that may be the answer for you. Well, thank you. You've done an excellent job. I will pause. Thomas, do you have questions for Dr. Poole? I do. Thanks, Steve. Dr. Poole, is this the machine they call the Da Vinci? Yes, sir. The main robot that's used for most subspecialties within surgery, and particularly heart and lung surgery, uh, Intuitive Surgical is the company that makes the robot, and the robot's called the Da Vinci System. All right. I'm just guessing here now, unless somebody who is a fellow cardiovascular surgeon is listening, that a lot of people can't really relate to the depth of what you're talking about here. But what we can relate to are video games. And this seems like it would be the ultimate video game. Can you describe what it's like running the robot? That is true. I love that analogy. And, and looking at the images and moving the robot the way it moves does very much look like a video game. Now, it's important to mention, I will just point out, the robot does not have a mind of its own. I don't hit start and then go off and do something else. It will not move except how the surgeon moves it. It's a form of telemedicine where the motion and action of the surgeon is transmitted into a different instrument. So that's how the robot works. So once we get the robot in position, I go away from the patient and go sit down at the console and there are foot pedals that help control the camera and the 
instruments a tiny bit, but most of the instrument control is in a couple of hand activated controllers. And I just move my fingers and move my arms and that moves the instruments inside the patient. So while all that's going on, I've got my head up into a viewfinder and that's where it really looks like a video game. Like you're, you're going down a corridor and make a turn or something like that. That is how it looks as we're doing it. I was pretty good at video games growing up. Of course, these were this was back in the days of <laughs> Pong and <laughs> Tetris and that kind of thing. And video games have come a long way. But I do think that this younger generation that is very good with hand-eye coordination and kind of this 3D visualization of moving, this younger generation may be even better or at least able to adopt this type of technology a little quicker than some of the older folks who aren't quite as used to video games or, or thinking that way or perceiving the world that way. So it's an interesting aspect of it, very much like a video game. Obviously, we approach it knowing that the patient's life is in our hands, so it's not exactly like playing a video game. But the idea of moving your hands virtually, but something else happening, that is exactly like a video game. Okay, full disclosure, about seven or eight years ago, I developed atrial fibrillation myself. And I know that through the treatment of it, often I was very emotional. It was hard to think things through clearly. And you're worried because your heart's not working right. And I'm single. So if somebody doesn't have that person like you're talking about, how would you advise them that we would best be able to process this information if we're having to do it by ourselves? Well, I appreciate the comment and the question. I think it happens so often, but hardly anybody even talks about it. How the emotional state, the distress that occurs when you feel like and know that something is wrong with your body, it can interfere with your thinking. And, and I don't mean that in some strange way, but it's just to think about deep questions is tough when you're worried about what's going on with your body and, and the unknown. So I think taking a loved one with you to the visit is a splendid idea that you just mentioned. And having another person to avoid a little bit of that emotional distraction and also to know that you don't have to make a hasty decision. I feel like a lot of times patients get so anxious that they make a decision before they've even really had time to think about it. So to visit with a physician, to hear some treatment options, ask the questions, and then take time to pause and reflect. Don't necessarily even give an answer. I don't want people to feel that additional pressure of having to make a decision while we're talking because I feel like that also can interfere with their thinking. Okay. And then obviously the other big question, how can we reverse engineer this and take care of our bodies so that we never have to even have this conversation in the first place? It's a great question. I feel like our culture in general only tries to tackle problems when they're in a crisis. <laughs> so we kind of know about things a little bit. Maybe it's financial. Maybe it's in other ways. But some, for some reason, as a culture, we don't ever even really engage it until it's a true crisis. And that seems to be true for personal health care. I think one key is longstanding relationship with your primary care physician to have an annual checkup, 
to pay attention to your blood pressure, to treat it with medications when needed. I feel like most people don't want to be on medicines. They don't want to be on several medicines. And doctors don't really want you on any medicines if you can avoid it, but some patients need medicines to manage their medical problems. Diet and exercise are important to not overeat, to be exercising and watch your cholesterol. It's all the things that the doctors talk about, but they're not just talking points. This is how you can live a healthy life. And over the years, those small little choices every day to take the stairs instead of the elevator, to not get dessert, you know, or at least eat one bite of dessert, not the whole thing. These little choices over the years, over a decade or two of adult life can really make a difference in keeping you out of trouble with your heart. Now, it seems like some problems are unavoidable. You can't help your genetics. You know, choose your parents carefully. You can't help some of these things, but the modifiable risk factors, such as diet, exercise, cholesterol, uh, smoking, Anybody who smokes need to, needs to stop right now. That's, that's a message that's difficult for, for patients to hear, but that is the single greatest thing that smokers can do for their own health is to stop. So with all of those factors guided by the primary care physician over a period of time, that's how patients can maximize their chance of not needing surgical intervention so they never have to meet me or the robot that's ideal for patients and something that in our culture here in the United States, we need to work on being better about instead of letting everything slide until it's a crisis and then jumping in with the robot, back it all the way up so that as we emerge from adolescence into adulthood, we've got good habits in terms of good health that will help keep people out of trouble. Dr. Poole, thank you so much for your comments here and especially everything you're doing to raise the bar for your patients at Texas Health Presbyterian Dallas. Steve? You know, I enjoyed the show, Thomas, and a little quick COVID update. It's been a long two years, but you know, we have a responsibility to give the positive news also. We've seen a decrease in hospitalizations of COVID-19. Thanks to our listeners, keep up the good work. We're all in this together. As we end on a positive note, remember, join us next Sunday on the Human Side of Healthcare.